Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. So we want to get to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, but um, chapter 1 really introduces and mentions the churches first and kind of gives the historical and, and thematic background for what he says to the churches. So I thought it would be good to just do chapter one today. That always an interesting chapter as an introduction to the book itself. And uh, we can go further deeper into the book later if you want to. Um, of course, the book is called Revelation, not Revelations. The Greek, the Greek title is Revelation of John, <clears throat> but the verse 1 starts out by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, but the Bible calls it Revelation, usually titled in your Bible Revelation. Um, so there's a brief introduction, benediction, in verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. We don't know exactly who the servants would be unless they would be those who are dressed later in the seven churches. And when he says things that must shortly take place, the idea of uh, shortly there means probably that there's, they're eminent, that, there's, that they can happen at any time. So this book is about things that are going to happen in the future, and, but he's also well, we'll see the outline in a little bit later. And so we know the author is John, um, and we know that John wrote from the island of Patmos where uh, he was imprisoned, uh, probably by Domitian under persecution there. And we'll see later that it's addressed to the seven churches as well. When people come to the book of Revelation, they can do some pretty crazy things with it, in my opinion. But one of the there's different ways of looking at it. Some people look at the events of the book of Revelation and they think that it all happened in the first century like it was the Christians against the Romans. That's called the preterist view. So it's already been fulfilled basically. <clears throat> Others look at it as a historical uh, a book that's symbolically and his, historic symbolically and it gives like an overview of church history and so it's really talking about events in history. Um, and then there's another view that just thinks it's talking about symbols of good and symbols of evil. So it interprets it kind of symbolically, allegorically or ideal, idealistically or ideally of uh, the struggle between good and evil. But the fourth view is what I think we would have in common and that's called the futuristic view that the things he talks about in most of the book of Revelation are future events and they're gonna happen literally. <clears throat> so. We get that from just looking at the language in the book of Revelation and taking it at its plain sense. As they say in the interpretation, Bible interpretation, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. So, you know, of course, there's figures of speech and some crazy symbols and we don't understand them all, but that, that doesn't mean they're not, they don't have a literal meanings uh, somewhere. So it's obvious that they're figures of speech, so they must have a meaning based in, in a real world, literal interpretation. 
So when we interpret the book of Revelation, what we come out with is what we call a premillennial view of the future where Jesus Christ is going to return and set up his kingdom for a thousand years. And that really comes out in chapter 20 in the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is about the future. It's, we call it apocalyptic literature uh, because it talks about some <clears throat> using fantastic symbols and uh, talks about the future. It's the largest prophecy in the New Testament. And um, it talks about a lot of details about the end times. There's a lot of people who say, boy, I just can't understand the book of Revelation. It's just, there's so much, so many symbols and, and uh, things going on there. And it is difficult to understand sometimes. But what, what I am convinced is to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament. And the reason a lot of people don't understand the book of Revelation is because they don't really understand the Old Testament because almost everything in the book of Revelation is based on the Old Testament. There are, even though it never quotes the Old Testament, there are over 300 allusions to the Old Testament. And so to understand the book of Revelation, you really need to understand the Old Testament. And I think that's why people struggle with it. And of course, Revelation is the uh, kind of the conclusion to the Bible story. So um, that starts in Genesis and kind of wraps things up very nicely. So you have the, the verse one calling it the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think that's because the revelation came from Christ himself and he's talking about things that are going to happen soon. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. We don't, the angel's not named, so we don't know. We know that Gabriel served as a messenger angel in the Old Testament. Could have been, could have been Gabriel that brought it to John. And uh, this angel bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So the angel is transmitting this revelation uh, and the words of Jesus Christ through John. Um, so that's kind of the nature of the book, how it was delivered and what it's about looking forward to the future. Uh, verse three contains a blessing which is uh, maybe, maybe the only book that really contains a blessing for those who read it. Um, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy, of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So a, a blessing is promised for those who read the book of Revelation, but also those who keep the things that are in it, are written in it. In other words, those who obey what it says to obey, which a lot, of, a lot of times it's not telling us things to do, but the, uh, the nature of the prophecies would direct us to a certain kind of conduct. So the person who hears, reads the words, hears them, and does the right things is, is blessed. And that's a promise that the book of Revelation has for us. So not, I don't know that there's another book that really promises blessing from just reading it and obeying it, although we know it's true of every book. And the reason is that for the time is near, again, because the time is at hand, or very close, eminent. And that's a good reason to take these words seriously. So now he starts out with, in verse four with his word to the churches. So this is where the seven churches come in that we'll be looking at. Uh, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia. So the whole book is written to the seven churches, but he's also addressing individual letters in chapters two and three to each 
one to each of the churches. But the reason, the fact that he's addressing all seven churches kind of tips us off to the idea that these churches might represent more than just their local congregation, but would also represent every kind of church, maybe, maybe in every kind of his, period of history, uh, in different circumstances. So the truths that are communicated to the seven churches would be truths that would be useful to churches everywhere. That's why I think they're included in this, and, and that would make sense. So his typical greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Of course, that title referring to, uh, to Jesus Christ, um, reminding of his sovereignty, his timelessness, and um, as he speaks to these churches. By the way, these churches are in Asia, which is Asia Minor which is the country of Turkey today. And um, they were all located in that area. So he, grace and peace to you is a typical reading of Paul. And from the sovereign Lord who is timeless. And he says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now here we, here we have now a symbol of some kind. What, and we have to say, what does that mean, the seven spirits? Because we would think that there's just one Holy Spirit. But the word, you know, the number seven is often used to refer to typically of completeness, totality. So the seven spirits, some have thought, could refer to the fullness of the Holy Spirit himself or seven ways he manifests himself um, or seven angelic spirits. We're not quite sure exactly what it means, it's hard, and it's hard to be dogmatic about the meaning of that. But they are before his throne, in his presence. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So the message, the greeting, is from Jesus himself as a faithful witness, the one who's faithfully communicated God's truth to mankind. Firstborn from the dead speaks of... Uh, not so much time as it does uh, prominence, preeminence uh, in his position. He, he set the precedent by rising from the dead. And he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. The big theme in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is the king and he's the ruler, especially near the end of the book. And I think a lot of the book of Revelation is to, is to declare who is the true ruler. Who is the true God? Because in the context where it was written, you remember the Romans had their emperors, and if you refused to call Caesar as Lord, then you were persecuted. And so you had to recognize Caesar as God uh, to avoid persecution. Evidently, John didn't do that. And so many Christians lost their lives because they refused to call Caesar Lord. And so the question is raised, who is the Lord? Who is the ruler, the real ruler? And I think the book of Revelation answers that in that historical context. He's the ruler over all the kings of the earth, and that would include all the Caesars. Um, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So Jesus Christ um, is, uh, is the one who... A God who loved us and he washed us, God washed us from our sins through his son Jesus Christ, his 
his own blood. Um, some translations read, who freed us from our sins. New King James reads, who washed us from our sins. Slight difference in the Greek manuscript. Either way, we have a great benefit from Christ and his death on the cross. I prefer the, the reading that he washed us from our sins by his blood. And verse 6, he made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's a, what he's done for us as believers. He's made us uh, kings because uh, or we will be participants in his rule or in his kingdom. And priests, as you know, we're called um, a priesthood, a royal priesthood that goes way back into the Old Testament even and into the New Testament as well. So we do have positions in the kingdom to rule with Christ, who is the king, and we also have a priestly function um, here on earth as well. So, and that's because of God's grace, he's made us kings and priests to God. And then he's praised for his, uh, his uh, sovereign dominion over everything. Uh, in verse 7, really kind of a, a theme of the book almost, that he, behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So here's an emphasis, behold, and Jesus is coming with clouds. Would this refer to the rapture or would this refer to the second coming of Christ? I believe it refers to the second coming of Christ because it says every eye will see him. Whereas in the rapture, we're not sure, except that believers who are raptured will see him. Um, when he comes in the clouds, here he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. So the idea is that the whole earth will see him. So it seems to be this is his second coming where believers and unbelievers will see him. Even they who pierced him, and I think that would be a reference to the Jews. <clears throat> and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Because they realize that they've, they're on the wrong side. Wrong side of history, wrong side of Christ. Now here's an example, verse 7, for example, where Zechariah 12.10 uh, is not quoted, but it, it certainly refers to in Zechariah 12.10 about how the Jews will see Jesus when he returns. They'll see his wounds and they will they will mourn about him that they have pierced and even though it doesn't quote Zechariah 12:10 it's a clear reference i think to Zechariah 12:10 verse 7 and then the words of Christ in verse 8 i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end <clears throat> says the lord who is and who was and who is to come the almighty um, so the, as the alpha and omega he's the beginning and the end he's the originator he's the terminator and he has control over all things in his timelessness, in his sovereignty. And Almighty is a reference, of course, to his great power. So this, so far, this introduction to the book of Revelation really establishes Jesus Christ as, as, as the power, the ruler over all the world, over all other world, world rulers. And he is coming again. And every eye will see him. And then he goes on in the vision to, to describe what he sees in the Lord. So he's commanded to record the vision, verse 9 to 11. 
I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John kind of has some words that endear him to his readers or help him identify with them. He calls himself a brother, a companion, and it's a companion in tribulation and the kingdom that's coming and the patience of Jesus Christ. So evidently they were all experiencing this persecution together and John is identifying with them, but he also is reminding them that they're all heirs of the kingdom and um, they're suffering for Jesus Christ. And he reminds us that he's on the island of Patmos and the reason he's there is because of his testimony for Christ. So he's obviously persecuted for his uh, Christian beliefs. And that's pretty much agreed upon. It's not told to us in the Bible, but it's pretty much agreed upon by all the early church, many of the early church fathers who write about that. So he says in verse 10 that he was, he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. In the spirit on the Lord's day, was that, does that mean that he was in prayer or maybe he was in a trance of some kind? Uh, to see this vision. The Lord's Day could refer to Sunday, although I think this is the only place that Sunday would be referred to as the Lord's Day. It's not referred to, to it that way anywhere else in the New Testament. Or it just be, could be referring to the time in history, which is the Lord's Day where Christ has come. But anyway, he was, he was in this spiritual state of receptivity when he heard this loud voice, an authoritative loud voice, just like a trumpet, <clears throat> often associated with the coming of Christ, the loud trumpet and so forth. And the voice is saying, I am the Alpha Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Cyrus, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So the voice is telling him, reminding him that he is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, as we already said the sovereign God over all, all time, all history, all events. And he's telling John to write these and send it to these churches. Now, if you were to trace those seven churches in Asia Minor and begin in Ephesus, it would be kind of a, a clockwise motion to form kind of a circle of churches. And that's many times how letters were shared in those days. A letter would be given to one church and it would circulate among the other churches. And so he's told to write this down. You know, it's not an easy chore to write down so many words that he gave him because it's a long letter or a long vision, let's say. Um, and it would be written on papyrus. And a papyrus scroll normally didn't get much longer than 15 feet. I don't know how, how much this would have taken up, but it would probably would have taken up, I would think, almost about 15 feet to write the whole letter of the Book of Revelation in Greek script. And... and on this long strip of papyrus. Would have been a lot easier if he had a word processor, huh? So John says, I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So there's a figure of speech we need to try to understand. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one, like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. And then he's going to describe him with all kinds of different terms and terminologies. Um, so he's, 
he turns and sees seven golden lampstands. And we're told later what those seven lampstands are, that they're going to be the churches. And in the midst of them is one like the Son of Man. One like the Son of Man could refer to the fact that he, he looked like a human, a human form. But the Son of Man was also a messianic title um, that you'll find in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where uh, the Son of Man is assigned to the Messiah. The term is assigned to the Messiah. <clears throat> now we look at the characteristics of him. He's clothed with the garment to his feet and girded about the chest with the golden band. <clears throat> it's as if he has a priestly garb on and he's working in the tabernacle. The picture that's conjured up for many is that he's has a priestly garment. He's working in the tabernacle among the, the lampstands, although in the tabernacle there was just one big lampstand. But um, the golden sash around his chest, uh, the golden band around his chest, could speak of the priestly garment, but also uh, reminds us of his royalty. And then on his head, it says, hair was white like wool, as white as snow. <clears throat> Let's just stop there. So. The white hair, what's that mean? Well, white usually speaks of purity. Um, here, it probably speaks of his holiness. Often white hair speaks of age, so it could be his e eternality as well. Um, his wisdom, maybe, his dignity. And it's as white as snow, so it's very, very bright white, very emphasis on that. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Usually when we talk about eyes and, and fire, the, the idea is that he has a penetrating uh, judgment. Jesus' piercing judgment. He can see all things. And his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. This may remind some of the bronze laver in the tabernacle. And when it talks about the brass feet, it could uh, imply that this is a, 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 a function of Jesus' judgment. Um, he is to come and to judge people and refine them. In his voice as the sound of many waters, uh, has a powerful voice. I don't know if you ever stood, stood beneath a waterfall or you probably have at some point in your life and it's just a thunderous noise and you can't really hear yourself talking to the person next to you. They can't hear you. But his voice is like the sound of many waters, um, which can be very, very loud and authoritative. And he had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth, we'll, we'll get to the seven stars. It's interpreted in verse 24, 20 for us. That's why I say we'll get to it. Um, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, else, elsewhere in scripture, the sword stands for the word of God. And so out of his mouth comes authoritative declarations, truth. The idea of a two-edged sword could imply that one edge is blessing, one edge is judgment. When we talk about a two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So here's Jesus in a glorious, sunny countenance in display of his glory. 
And then in verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So John sees Jesus and he falls at his feet as dead, which is interesting because if you think about it, what do we read in the Gospels? Uh, like at the Last Supper, John was the one closest to the Lord, right? And we find him there resting his head on Jesus' bosom or his breast, his chest. So there was no fear there. It's, a, it's an intimate scene of John not being afraid to be close to Jesus. But here, he's afraid because he sees Jesus in a different way. And Jesus has to calm him down and reassure him. So he lays his hand on him. Uh, John says, he laid his hand on me and said to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Um, so the first words to John are, don't be afraid. It's, <laughs> hey, it's me. Um, I don't know why we're watching our daughter's dog right now. And I don't know why, but you know, when I'm sitting in my, my easy chair watching TV or something, He'll come up and put his head on my lap and everything's cool. But it, when I come home by myself, like just the, yesterday, I think I came into the house by myself and he's afraid of me and he's running to another room and he's kind of sulking around. I was saying, and I'm talking to him and letting him recognize my voice and everything. I, I don't understand why. When I sit in the chair, he's fine. But when I'm standing up, he's afraid. So I guess it depends on how you're perceived and John perceived Jesus in a way that made him afraid. But Jesus reminds him that he's eternal. He was dead and um, he's alive now. And I, I am alive forevermore. So he's now the resurrected Christ, not just Jesus confined to a human body as John knew him before. And he has the keys of Hades and of death. Um, Hades is probably not referring here to hell, but to the, the intermediate state. When someone died, they were put into Hades to wait uh, to either pass into paradise or to pass into or a holding place before they go into hell. Um, so it was a place of the dead before they were cast into hell. But Jesus saying he has the keys means that he has authority over uh, hell or Hades, I'm sorry, and, and death itself. So you shouldn't be afraid of him because he's got the authority over, over those powers. And then he tells John in verse 19, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things will take place after this. Now, almost everybody who has written on the book of Revelation or preached it recognizes that verse 19 is really an outline of the book of Revelation. He tells John to write the things which you have seen. Well, that would be the vision that we just discussed. And then he says, the things which are, that would be the seven churches that exist in John's day that he's writing to. And the third thing, the things which will take place after this. So beginning in chapter four, that describes the things that take place after the present age of the seven churches dressed in chapters two through three. So do you see how that forms a neat outline for the book? Write down the things that you've seen, that's chapter one, the things that are the seven churches in chapters two and three, and the things that are gonna come afterwards, which is chapter four, which tells us that chapter four through 22 are future events. And then in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand 
and the seven golden lampstands. Now he's going to explain these figures of speech, which is good because, you know, when we read the book of Revelation, we don't understand a lot of figures of speech. It's always nice to have Jesus explain them to us. So he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So he, he explains it in such a way that we're not quite sure what he means when he says that the stars are angels of the churches. What does that mean? Uh, some people believe that he could be referring to angels, an angel that oversees each of the church. Some people believe it could refer to the pastor or the human leader in the church. Or human leaders, as in the plurality of elders over the church. One reason that people would think that these seven stars are really angels, spiritual angels, is because Jesus wouldn't interpret a symbol with a symbol. He's talking about stars and he's interpreting it for us and he wouldn't interpret it by using another symbol. So he must be talking about real angels as, as they, would, they would argue. There also is, the, I think we can trace the truth that angels sometimes act as guardians in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you know, the children have their angels. So some people argue for guardian angels and uh, they can be over the church. And the, the scene for this seems to be a heavenly scene. So they argue that the angels would be heavenly angels because it's, it's kind of a heavenly scene. It's not just an earthly scene. Um, some, however, argue that the, the stars are talking about, and the angels simply are talking about messengers because that's what the word angel is. It comes from the word for messenger and sometimes translated that way. And the messengers would be human messengers like pastor, the pastor, like Epaphroditus or Epaphras, we read in the New Testament, were leaders of the church. Um, or it could be referring to the leadership of elders in the church. Um, so there's two possibilities, and we don't know exactly where to land on that. Um, given the heavenly scene uh, and, and the heavenly context of the vision, and the fact that he calls them angels and angels everywhere else in the book of Revelation, I think refers to spirit beings. It might give more weight to the argument that he's, the stars represent angels over the churches. So anyway, that's the kind of work we have to do to try to figure out some of these symbols. And these seven stars are in his right hand. And then there's the seven golden lampstands. So what are the lampstands? The lampstands, he says very clearly, are the seven churches. So that's very clear to us. There's no question about that. So he has seven churches. He wants John to write to them. And he's holding, he's, he's amongst them. He's walking amongst these seven churches, the lampstands, with the seven stars in his hand, showing them that he has control over these messengers, whether they're angelic or human. He has control over them, over the churches. So that's chapter one that introduces the seven churches to us. Next time we can begin to look at the letters to the churches and see what they mean. But I think there's some things uh, that we can learn from this, uh, that what we've read so far in the book of Revelation. And first is that uh, Christ is with the churches and he's with us. That means he's with us today. He's with his people. He's walking among the golden lampstands. He's not in heaven, unconcerned, isolated, but he's involved actively 
among the, the churches of John's day as he, and I believe that implies he is as well today. I happen to think those seven churches in John's days represent all churches of all time, although they, they were real churches. But the characteristics of those churches can represent any church today. And so his message would be the same to the churches today. And uh, it tells us that he's, he's involved with every church uh, in the world today. And he will judge the churches, I think comes out of this passage also. And so if he's involved, if he's walking among the churches, there's going to be a day of judgment for the churches. And he's going to pronounce those kind of judgments in chapters two and three on the seven churches. But if he's going to judge the churches, then we should live in awe of him and in fear of him. Um, and with that future judgment in mind, so that we're very careful about how we conduct ourselves in the church, how we lead the church, how we value the church, um, how we might change the church. Uh, he's going to judge those who criticize the church, try to condemn the church, or try to destroy the church. I think another thing we learn is that uh, he's coming soon, and he's coming soon in glory. So these things are at hand, it says. Uh, every eye will see him. Uh, Jesus is coming soon, and we need to be ready. So as... Uh, as believers in his church, we need to be ready for his return for the church and ready for that judgment. And I think we also finally should remember as we read chapter one that Jesus' vision of the future is not really to cause us fear, but to encourage us and give us hope. That's what he really wants to do. He wants to show us that we're on the winning side. He is victorious and therefore we are victorious even though there will be a judgment for those who are not living for, for him, whether in the church or outside the church, uh, two different judgments. Um, but remember, the book is meant to be a blessing to those who read it, according to verse 3. It's, it's meant to be a blessing to those who read it. And so it's an encouragement to those who are living a God-fearing life to look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, he's involved with his churches, and he's going to rule, and he's going to judge them. So... That's what I kind of get out of this, uh, chapter one. Chapter one of Revelation is not like the epistles which tells you to do certain things, so where it's easier to get an application. Here we have to just say, well, this is God, this is who he is, this is what Jesus is doing, so therefore, how do we want to respond to that? How do we want to act to that? What kind of church do we want to be? Uh, what kind of attitudes do we want to have as we anticipate his coming? So that's chapter one. It lays a basis for our discussion of the seven churches in John's day that will begin in chapter two in verse one the next time we meet. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.